Hey, hello, how are you? Welcome to the Pre-Pro Podcast. I know, such a tongue twister. Uh, It's the podcast where TV, film, and broadcast media pre-professionals actually have a chance to speak with guest speakers as mentors, uh, and not just a lecture series, which sometimes can go over the heads of teenagers. I am your host and moderator, Kay Ross. Uh, I just want to take this time to dedicate this introductory podcast to the class of 2020. You know, I wish I could be there with you celebrating your grand victory of surviving this year. (laughs) If you have actually made the grade and gotten through with everything that is going on, then I congratulate you and I wish I were there. Um, But in lieu of being physically there to celebrate with you, uh, I'm here and I'm doing probably one of the scariest things I have ever done, which is put myself out there and in a committed, regular, (laughs) regularly scheduled way. So I'm taking this introductory episode to introduce myself, who I am, why I believe I'm uniquely qualified to speak on this topic, but also moderate this topic, um, and really what I hope to encourage using these conversations. Uh, So first, who I am. Uh, I was actually born into a family of actors, but also into a family of educators. Um, My father did choir and um, forensics and theater all through high school. He actually thought he was going to be in the Air Force. He actually started performing on stage uh, before college, like before college ended for him. So uh, for those of you who are familiar with the the opera, the the stage play uh, Porgy and Bess in the late 70s. My father was one of the few Caucasian males in the company, um, which was a great thrill for him because he was Baptist. So being able to perform with great um, African-American performers was just a dream for him. Uh, on the flip side, my mother met him during drama. Uh, she was majoring in drama at UT in Austin. And somehow along the line, she... she decided that it it wasn't for her and and she did want something a little more stable uh so she went she went to work for the federal government um my mother actually got her master's in education uh specifically in adult education so um as a teenager i was um receiving a lot of practice sessions uh as an educator And it never really occurred to me that I had actually experienced quite a bit of uh, reciprocity. So in middle school, I was tutoring. By the time I got to high school, I was doing martial arts. Uh, And as a martial artist, um, even in my early um, levels, I was teaching. I was tutoring as a, uh, you know, a yellow belt to younger artists. and by the, by the end of my tenure there, uh, because I do have two first-degree black belts, so I am considered Sensei Ross, I was teaching adults as a teenager, which was quite a thrill. So speaking of high school, most of my um, performing arts background actually started in theater, again, because I came from a family of actors, so it didn't seem really intimidating to me. Um, I did theater... Um, martial arts was the other really big thing in high school. You know, I kind of let choir peel away and I kind of let band peel away. So what kind of floated to the top, what, what really, uh, I stuck with was theater 
and martial arts. Um, and I won't lie, there was a time there where I was considering doing stunt work because, you know, I was so active and I really wanted to be able to use those skills. And I was like, oh, that'd be fun. Interestingly enough, it was because I was bouncing back from, I thought I wanted to be a police officer. So I was, I part of the reason I did martial arts because I was training to be a police officer. And uh, when I realized that the job would endanger the life of my mother's only child, I was like, hmm, uh, I don't think she'll ever forgive me if I die while on duty. So let's find something less risky. <laughs> After my first year of college, uh, I was actually doing professional theater straight out of high school um, because our theater program was so uh, intensive and really enjoyable, actually. Um, they really they treated us like adults, uh, which was amazing. Um, so yeah, straight out of the gate, uh, after doing community theater, and I was, I know you're looking at me going, oh, clearly you did acting, but no, it's not true. I actually, um, stage management and, uh, lighting were my big two things. Um, I even remember one of my first gigs in middle school, I was a stage manager and probably just cause I was fearless around other people. I remember hosting a table read with, um, with the cast of this particular play and thinking what a thrill it was that I was able to command the attention and, and actually really help facilitate um, this process with people that were older than I was, um, like theoretically more experienced. Uh, and it was such a thrill. So later on, high school, did lighting. Um, I was able to transfer those skills to local theaters in uh, Washington, D.C., because my mother was federal government, so Washington, D.C. just was <laughs> the natural um, move. So local theaters in Washington, D.C., Signature Theater, Source Theater, if you're familiar with the little black box theater downtown. But after that first year of doing professional theater uh, and my first year of college all at the same time, um, it just became obvious that I didn't really have a direction and everything I was doing was not fulfilling. Um, not to mention, I was not holding it together, so the college and I mutually agreed I should not come back. Uh, I thought it was a waste of time and money, and they thought so too. So um, I went back into the workforce, um, knowing that I had to make more than, you know, entry-level wages in order to survive. And a friend of mine, who was a grade below me, had decided she didn't want to go to college, uh, and she was looking into going to massage school instead. And I was like, oh my god, who gets paid to do this? So I ended up going to massage school. Uh, I was a massage therapist for years, uh, and it's what paid my way through film school. And I honestly didn't even think film school, <laughs> I, it never occurred to me. Um, when I started going back to school, just to kind of dip a toe in and see if it would work, there were two classes I took, uh, The Art of Film. Robert Brown is the instructor there at uh, Nova, Loudoun County location, and a uh, great guy, still in contact with him. And uh, at the same time, I was taking this fantastic psychology class called The Psychology of Human Sexuality. Why they don't teach that at the high school level, I don't know. They really should. Moving on. Topic for another day. So I'm taking these two classes. You know, I've, I'm like three to five years into my massage career at this point. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do now that I have the ability to pay my way through school and kind of in my own way. And, uh, 
you know, life happens. I'm not able to finish the final for the psychology class. So even though I am rocking that class, like my, the, the final presentation I did was phenomenal. So much so that I remember the teacher actually writing on my uh, written uh, report that like natural teacher question mark. I was like, oh, thanks, man. And then I still failed the class. (laughs) And it just goes to show that you can be good at something and still not get a good grade. Um, But the art of film, you know, I didn't feel like I was actually particularly good at. There were a lot of other people in that class that had real ambition and knowledge of the cameras. And and I just love film. Like the fact that we were able to sit around and, you know, break down the montages of, of... Armageddon, <laughs> which I'm like, why, why are we watching this? Or, you know, the music videos of Janet Jackson, which were phenomenal. Um, nice little hidden cuts in there to make it look like it's a oneer. So phenomenal. And I, not only do I end up getting an A in that class, but the art of film, the, the, the whole time, most of it is just analysis, but the final, you actually have a chance to assemble a team and make a film. And, and again, because I have so little ambition, I'm just kind of tossed into a group. Um, and after presenting our film, it is clear <laughs> we are not the cream of the crop. It was solid, right? Like, solid idea, beginning, middle, and end. It's a music video, so we didn't even have to worry about audio, which is awesome. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> by the end of it, we had, like, every member of the group had reported just a phenomenal um, experience. Mr. Brown pulled us aside. He was like, I have been teaching this class for five years, and I have never had an experience where every member of the group said that they actually had a good experience, that they all agreed and, and enjoyed it, and were actually getting along by the end of it what did you do? <laughs> and, um, and I had to chime in because early on, I didn't necessarily think that it was going well because we were workshopping ideas and I threw something out there and they didn't like it, but somebody else threw up something and they did like it. I was like, well, whatever, like, at least we agree that we can pull that off. And we did. Um, and I kind of by default became the producer because, you know, one guy you know, was studying directing, so he wanted to try it, but he was knowledgeable about the camera. Another guy was um, knowledgeable about um, the camera, but he wanted to try editing. The The girl whose idea it was, like, she was used to being an actress, but she wanted to learn more about editing. So, and as a producer, like, I was just used to getting things done, regardless of the context, and I just, I got to learn everything. So I said, that was honestly, I think that's why we felt that the experience was so rich, was everybody came into it knowing what they could contribute and contributing that, right? So they were satisfied with their contribution, but also going into it feeling like they wanted to learn something. And every one of us had a chance to learn from each other. So in a big, big, bad way, egos got checked because we kept our expectations (laughs) reasonable. Um, We contributed and learned something. Um, And so it gave us a chance to to enjoy the experience instead of, um, you know, be resentful of the things that we didn't have. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we still got it done. (laughs) Um, You know, we, we made good connections and it was it was good. 
little did I know that it was foreshadowing for moving to Colorado. And I honestly thought I had moved to Colorado to get a degree in psychology uh, at Europa University in Boulder. And after looking at the price tag and really having a reflection on what jobs would lend itself to a psychology degree, I was like, hmm, yeah, I don't, I don't think I want to listen to people. I don't need that certificate that says, you know, I'm, I'm good at listening. In fact, as a massage therapist, like I have learned how to listen. I think I actually have something to say. So <laughs> knowing what my budget was, <laughs> which was next to nothing, and finding out about Colorado Film School, which was a workforce school. So the first three years of a four-year degree, you're paying community college prices. I was like, well, let's give this a shot. Two classes at a time because I can pay out of pocket. And it was everything I never knew I wanted. And I was hooked. I, not just the, the work, not just who I was when I saw myself in that work, but the people I attracted when I finally jumped into that deep end. So <laughs> that's who I am, <laughs> the person who jumped into the deep end. Um, I will mention that I, so Colorado Film School, transferred into Regis University. I walked uh, in 2012, but because of um, personal reasons, because of medical issues, um, there was a delay between the last of my credits, uh, between walking and, the, and finishing the last of my credits. So I didn't actually receive my degree until 2016, so four years later. And in that time, like, I got married, I moved to Texas, I then moved to back to Maryland to be near my family. Um, and in, in Maryland is when I actually got the physical paper. Um, when I got the physical paper, I just shot off like a cannon. <laughs> I, like... During that time, I had, you know, involved myself in web series and produced shorts. Like, I never really stopped making things. I just couldn't make it my full-time occupation because I didn't really have the piece of paper that said, I can do it. Um, and the truth is, <laughs> when you're a massage therapist and you do make regular money, it is difficult to let go of the expectation that you should be able to make regular money. Um, Anyway, so in Maryland, uh, I started picking up PA gigs. Um, you know, you just, you hit up all those sites that sometimes they're pay for play, staff me up, Mandy, which used to be production hub. Um, sometimes you reach out through networks. So women in film for me was pivotal for finding those first jobs. Um, because people are more interested in, in giving you a chance if you're already taking a risk. So I uh, got my first PA gig with, um, a media company doing interviews, got to shoot at the museum, sorry, Newseum, <laughs> which has a great backdrop of the Capitol building behind it. Of course, the museum is closed now, but neither here nor there. I didn't get my big break until a few months later. Uh, there was a job posting for a recreation production assistant, which I had never heard of before, but it didn't matter because the truth is half of the time when you think you know the job, you actually don't, and you and you kind of hit the ground running, and you figure it out as you go, and that's true across the board. But we'll get into that later. Um, 
So I got an email in response. I, I sent out my application through Staff Me Up. I got an email in response saying, hey, I, you know, I'd like to interview you. It was right around Thanksgiving. And, um, and I remember thinking, oh, you know, I don't want to push it. I don't want to push my luck. Um, the interview was supposed to be the Monday after Thanksgiving. Um, or we were supposed to arrange the interview Monday after Thanksgiving. Monday came, Monday went. I did not hear from the person. Tuesday morning, I'm like, you know what? I bet they just got busy. Something happened. I'm going to check in on them. Tuesday morning, dropped them an email, said, hey, um, I hope you had a great holiday. Um, really looking forward to meeting you. What time is good for you? And almost immediately got a, an email back going, hey, thanks for following up. How about you know, Thursday or Tuesday the next week. I don't know. Um, you know, and I was like, yes, you know, this day and this time will work. Will it work for you? And then there was this lag of time. So I followed up the next day and I was like, Hey, um, is Tuesday at this time? Okay. With you. They're like, yes, thank you. You know, thanks for getting back to me. And it came up during my interview. It even came up after hiring me that, part of the reason I was hired was because I understood that I had to take a proactive approach to this industry in order to be kind of caught up in that current. Um, if you if you sit back on your laurels, it's very possible that you'll get passed up for the job. Um, and especially the lower level you are, you've, you know, you've got to be faster than other people. And for those of you who can't see me, that was me snapping my fingers to say hustle. <laughs> um, so, so my first job was my first full-time staff position was as a production assistant, recreation production assistant, which is probably the worst position you can think of, because uh, you're doing costumes and props and art direction and, you know, pretty much anything they can throw at you, you're doing it. Um, However, if you can survive it, <laughs> um, the move to first AD um, or associate producer as they, as you know, um, as recreationists, <laughs> we'll call it, um, is not far. Uh, I actually moved into production coordinator shortly after that. Um, and from production coordinator, um, it became obvious that the next step was going to be production manager. And, and I actually started training in the role and realized this is not what I want to do in the industry, or at least this is not what I'm good at. Um, when I was in film school, I was very well known for being that person who would champion good ideas, good projects that just kind of got stuck in the mud. Um, <clears throat> you know, come to find out later that, that creative producers, um, which are not normally given that title, but that's the best way to describe them. Um, they're the ones who understand the story and they understand the characters and they really understand, you know, the emotional impact of, of the big picture and need to be able to translate that, convey that to, you know, the more logistical, um, uh, people. So when you're talking line producers who have to break down your budget, um, like they need people like me who know how to identify the trouble areas and they know how to identify um, what's working in a script and what's not or what's working on set and what's not. Um, so yeah, that, that big picture producer mind is, is so pivotal and, and there, that was not the direction I was going. The direction I was going was line producer. Um, 
and that's that's not where I shine uh so you know and I was taking some other jobs as they were coming I was so lucky to take on uh, a production coordinator job with the Food Network which gave me a whole new perspective and I gotta tell you if you're looking for a sweet gig literally sometimes um find a way to be on a food show those people eat so well oh my god um (laughs) just throwing that out there um and it's amazing because right before that, um, I had met a really cool lady, um, Victoria uh, uh, Villarreal. No, not Villarreal. That's somebody else. Um, Vieira. Victoria Vieira of Vieira Productions. And she and I just hit it off. Uh, very serendipitous how we met. And after meeting her, I was like, look, I've been really wanting to get back into the director's seat again just to get back into the mindset of writing and directing and producing and and you know directing for me is is part of that uh cycle so i want to do this director's workshop so we got together we shot this director's workshop um with the help of just amazing creative people including my my work wife from uh from Storyhouse, where i was doing production coordinating <laughs> who was moving out of her apartment so the the apartment was actually clear of all stuff which was perfect for the look we were going for truly serendipitous the whole experience now regardless of because it was an exercise right the the material was um written by somebody else so it was it was already a movie i had no rights to it i'm not gonna get like recognition for doing this workshop however work finds you working the moment i pushed myself outside of making money somehow (laughs) right after that i got this food network gig and right after the food network gig i got another gig with cortina productions and during my three-week gig with cortina productions which for the record is like the google of production companies in the dc area they make um media for museums and I swear to God, it is just the cushiest, most pleasant environment you have ever been in. So you've heard it here first. Try to work with Cortina Productions. They're amazing. Okay, so <clears throat> three weeks of Cortina Productions. And every week I'm with them, I have at least two interviews every week. Um, sometimes it's like one over the phone and one in person. Sometimes it's with the same company. Crazy, crazy. Um, by the end of that time, I'm kind of between two jobs. One job is with the Smithsonian Channel up in New York, um, which, you know, sometimes you just got to be flexible about these things. You know, it's possible I would have moved to New York. Um, or uh, this teaching gig with uh, JFK High School in Silver Spring. And there was something about the opportunity at the high school that I just could not resist. And some part of that is, and I will say it until the day I die, um, I had such a catapulting experience as a high schooler that I felt I knew better than most how to communicate with high schoolers to treat them like adults. Because I had been treated like an adult. And and could very easily witness the difference because my theater director, um, 
all the way through to my junior year, um, pretty much made it student run, right? We weren't renting costumes. We were making them. We weren't, um, enlisting the help of parents to build sets. We were making them and not just making them. We were designing them and making them and painting them. And we would enlist uh, the help of the art department, right? Because when you're painting a set, you know, theater people don't necessarily know all those things. Um, We were building extended stages and rotating stages. And I mean, it was just involved and awesome. And having that kind of personal responsibility um, as a teenager, I mean, it the lessons sink in. I learned how to do purchase orders as a teenager. I learned about the production triangle as a teenager. I learned about thinking on your feet when a fire alarm goes off in the middle of your production and how to get back to it after you've evacuated everybody and you have to, you know, filter people back in. So like crowd control, I learned as a teenager. Yeah. And I think for me, that was the opportunity I just really wanted to sink my teeth into, which is, and, and just to give you an anecdote as to why I knew this, why I felt it. So community college before I go to Regis University. And I remember being in this class called, it is the philosophy of religion. And I loved it because the philosophy of religion, as opposed to world religions, is very much supposed to focus on the big questions that religion is supposed to answer. Which means, you know, you're applying the philosophical logic to religious practice. Loved it. The issue I saw time and time again is that the struggle most young people had, and and I say young people meaning people who had recently emerged from high school, And in that teenage condition, often, not just that they think they know everything, but they're not prepared for the things that they don't know. Like, there's a certain inflexibility um, by um, by that time. There was this one kid, and you're asked to debate on either side of an argument. And this one kid was assigned um, the side of an argument that he did not personally believe in and couldn't argue it. And the truest sign (laughs) of not just intelligence, but the truest sign of flexibility, of growth, of maturity is being able to see somebody else's point of view without necessarily agreeing with it. And he just, he just couldn't. So much so that that the teacher was forced to put him on, you know, the side that he agreed on because he, he could not formulate an argument based on something he didn't believe on, believe in. And it, for me, it brought to light one very important thing, which is if you do not introduce new thought and challenge young minds in high school, you will lose them. You will, they will lose the ability to be challenged and, and grow and ask very essential, big questions later on. Um, and even by the end of my teaching tenure this time last year, um, <coughs> pardon, I actually had some very good conversations with, with the students that hadn't left 
Um, you know, because once people are graduated, there's a couple of weeks and, and classes get a little smaller. And I remember this one kid having, he was like, I'm having an existential crisis. And I was like, "Ugh, I love it. Come talk. What's going on? Um, and I love that he was able to embrace having this existential crisis, but also that he could recognize he was having it. Because most p- people who never experience it, it's because they haven't been forced to challenge their belief system. Yeah. Anyway, all the all that to be said, um, I I I jumped on the opportunity to be a high school teacher, um, specifically teaching TV, film, broadcast journalism, um, because I knew how to engage kids at that level so that they could take a sense of authority over the information they were going to learn. It didn't matter how much they learned. What mattered was how confident they were about the skills they were learning. And I had already experienced that as early as, you know, teenager, um, as a teenager. So I feel like we've already kind of gone into why I'm uniquely qualified. Um, definitely because my mother, as an educator, she practiced as, as she was getting her master's in adult education. She was practicing on me. So I definitely have absorbed those lessons. Um, I've done teaching of my own. So I tutored in middle school. Uh, I actually taught adults and children in martial arts all through high school. Uh, and actually started my own classes my first year of college, which is probably one of the reasons why I couldn't really juggle two jobs and, you know, hosting my own classes and uh, also being in class. Yeah, full, full load. (laughs) Um, I will mention that even as a massage therapist, I found myself at the end of sessions trying to involve my clients in the process of their own healing because if I could get them to understand not just what my observations were, but what our plan was moving forward, that whether or not it sounded like I was giving them homework didn't really matter because what mattered was that if I involved them in the process that they could see long-term benefits uh, far beyond the immediate relief that they were receiving. So I was educating my clients. the diamond in the rough, I think, in all of this is that my time in Texas before I moved to Maryland uh, and, and started my my television career, um, I was an administrator at Lone Star College. And I actually, uh, I helped develop a uh, curriculum there because my husband was teaching a class uh, and, and I gleefully helped him put together a curriculum for the production management course. But uh, but also because I was the administrator in the music department, <clears throat> which I really like. That is not my forte, no pun intended. But I found myself becoming a mentor to these students, even though I was just that lady in the front desk. <laughs> um, and and I remember that the the department head, when I left on the day on my last day there, he pulled me aside and he's like, "I just want you to know, I've never had anybody." Um, make this kind of impact on the students in such a short time. Um, And it really, you know, it really touched me because you want to feel like your efforts are meaningful. You know, it's kind of like, you ever been to a restaurant 
or even like getting a sandwich at Subway, something where you have a very short period of exposure with somebody. But you can see that that person is trying to make the most of that time. And they have made such efforts to connect with you and make your day better and enjoyable that the experience is far more memorable than um, the expectation, than, than why you showed up in the first place. And that was the gift he was giving me, was letting me know that um, what I was offering every day was more than just the expectation set forth by my job um, and that it was appreciated. Um, so yeah, yeah, I knew I could do well at this job. And I gotta say, as much as I definitely couldn't stay, um, I was, I, that first month people did not like me. <laughs> and part of the reason I was willing to make sure that they did not like me is because there were certain expectations going in to the, to the, to the situation, but also to the system that I was not willing to perpetuate. Um, so previously they had been handed cameras, like they were pacifiers. Um, they wanted it, they got it, period. And I was like, well, that's going to end <laughs> because how are you going to develop any sort of respect for the equipment if you don't have some sort of barrier certification or what have you to getting there and i'm not even talking like a huge barrier but most people have to pass a safety test before they're allowed to handle equipment when i was in theater you had to pass a safety test before you could lower a baton or get up in a genie lift and <clears throat> We even had licensing tests so that if you wanted to work in theaters at other schools, you basically passed the same licensing tests as other like maintenance people. Um, so yeah, no, I definitely believed in if you if you want to show kids that this is how you have a trade skill, that you have to actually take them through the steps of learning a trade, which includes having a certification test. So I put together this, you know, 25 question fill in the blank test and everybody like, ah, uh, you know, because clearly the only kind of tests that they were used to were multiple choice. You know, how, how dare anybody try to make them remember the actual words <laughs> as part of the information. And, and, you know, we can have discussions and I would love to have these discussions about proper accommodations and yada, yada, yada. But when it comes to basic safety, you do have to be quite firm. Sarah Jones is, is a great example of that, right? Your crew, your cast must trust you. You have to trust each other. And the only way to do that is to be very clear and strict about what your what will fly and what won't, what what's safe and what isn't. Um, so so I made two requirements. One, you had to get a 90% or better um, before you were allowed to touch any of the cameras, any of the equipment, really. Uh, and two, you could take it as many times as you wanted to. You just had to get 90%. Um, and for me, this, this showed them two things. One, it built trust immediately because you can't have two people on set where one person got 60 and the other person got 90 and have those two people respect each other, right? 
because somewhere there's going to be someone, you know, thinking in the back of their mind, that guy shouldn't be here. Why have you let them here? Because they don't know how to conduct themselves because they don't know the basic information. So it's trust building. It's, it's unifying. (laughs) Um, But making them do it as many times as necessary to get that 90, for me, is the basic resiliency that is needed in order to do film and television. Because in film and television, anything where it's pre-recorded, you don't do it in take one. You do it in take five. You do it in take ten. So getting used to the idea that it's just not going to be perfect the first time. All right, no big deal. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Um... It was already grooming them into that mindset. So to say the least, by the end of it, people were actually a little more (laughs) mad that I was leaving because I had pushed them in all the right ways. Um, We we did a couple of field trips, one to the museum, which I was so proud of. Uh, We did another one um, that was a joint effort with another high school for the IB film kids so they could actually do um, like filming on location which is awesome because when you ask, you know, teenagers to try and film something, the only places they know to try and film are home, school, and any other place that they frequent. So if they go to a pool, they're going to shoot at the pool. They don't necessarily know to explore, um, or they don't necessarily think to explore. Um, So that was a lot of fun. And then, of course, we started an annual screening because, you know, kids wanted to see their work up on the big screen. Um, so, so I was very proud of that first year. Um, I was also quite devastated because all of the things that I could tell that teenagers needed (laughs) and specifically to get involved in the process and not be a product of the process, not just be a product of the process, but they needed to be involved in the process. You know, teachers are suffering from the same thing, right? If teenagers need thorough and swift feedback, so do teachers. If teenagers need to be involved in the process, so do teachers. Um, And the truth is that teenagers are absolutely overwhelmed in ways that sometimes we don't know about. Um, It could be a familial thing. It could just be uh, a relationship thing. You know, they're, they're learning about friendships. They're learning about romantic relationships. They're learning about their own identities. Sometimes it's just overwhelming. And I gotta say, Half of the battle is just surviving being a teenager. Like, no wonder people throw it to the wind and like, eh, whatever. Like, who cares about grades? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah. Who cares about grades? If it's important to you, go for it. Like, if it's part of who you are, do it. But, you know, the truth is, surviving is often the name of the game. So, teaching high school was definitely eye-opening for me. Um, not just that check. Yes, this is something I would love to do again. And once I think I'm done putting myself out there and trying to create, like I haven't spent enough time as a creator. I have spent a lot of time as a facilitator. Um, yeah, I would love to go back to it, but right now I know what I've learned from teenagers is is that bravery and even the audacity to challenge yourself and challenge expectations and really just question. Part of the reason I want to do this series where not only that um, 
we can talk to guest speakers. Um, I want to talk to teenagers and then if I can pair up teenagers with guest speakers for a roundtable discussion so that not only that teenagers, pre-professionals can feel like they're part of that discussion, but also in a big, bad way that they can learn how to communicate with adults in a new way because I tried to reinforce often that I don't want you to look at me as your teacher first. I want you to look at me as your producer first. Yes, secondarily, I am your teacher. I'm going to have to give you a grade. I have to check your attendance. But first, I am here in like a sandbox version (laughs) of the real world. Um, And one of my favorite anecdotes to really highlight what I mean by this. So one of my students, really great... um, attentive, even if he wasn't always thrilled about the assignment, he was paying attention, he was interacting, and he he submitted his work. His friends, not so much, but he would. And somewhere in the like end of third quarter, beginning of fourth quarter, we've just started this kind of news cycle where like every week we're churning out stuff for the broadcast. And he's been given his assignment and he's like, no, I don't want to do it. I want to do this instead. And I was like, that's not really how this works. Like, this is your assignment. I need you to do this. It needs to get done by this time. And as teenagers do, he's like, well, it sounds like you need me more than I need you. And I was like, is that what it sounds like? But I had to walk away because I could feel myself getting like hot in the face, which means that I'm, I'm about to respond to it emotionally. So I walk away. I give myself a few minutes. I was like... This guy needs the rock. <laughs> um, there's this wonderful moment in Fast Five where, you know, he's like, give me the damn veggies. <laughs> and it just makes me think kids don't understand how that kind of conversation translates to a professional. You're still treating me like a teacher. You're still treating me like an extension of your parents. And that's fine. If you need someone to rebel against, go for it. But you need to understand the consequences if you were talking to your boss, not to your teacher. So I walk back over there and I say, look, I don't know if you know this, but my job is to mimic the real world so that you are prepared for it. And in this industry, if you were to approach your boss, um, specifically at a newspaper or, you know, broadcast news um, channel uh, and say, Thank you for that assignment. I'm not doing it. This is what I want to do instead. I'd be like, oh, good for you. There's the door. Because they hire you to do their bidding. They hire you to get done what they ask you to do and in a timely fashion. If, however, you want to do what you want to do, the way to get it is not to say either or. Because for them, the option is easy. It would be bye-bye through the door. Um, The option instead is do the work and do the work so stellarly that they don't think to have any objections. And once they don't have any objections, you go, hey, by the way, here's this thing I'd like to do. And you pitch them on the idea. And more often than not, if you meet expectations 
in the thing that you're asked to do, then they give you a bit of grace and are willing to trust you to try the things that you want to do. I said, so, you know, welcome to the real world. Sometimes you got to eat your veggies before you get dessert. I'm not opposed to you doing what you want to do, but you have to eat your veggies. You have to get this done. And it's not for me. It's for your grade. That's, that's the ultimate reflection of, did you do your work? But also, this is not the atmosphere of me hand, like holding your hand like your parent. I'm not your parent. I am your pre-professional boss. And, and that's the kind of switch, like paradigm shift, that I hope to encourage, incite, um, inspire in other pre-professionals listening right now. So ultimately, in order to engage the youth, um, how I'd like to address that problem is involving kids in the conversation as part of the roundtable. Honestly, if we have the ability to give constructive feedback, I would love that as well. Um, a lot of this interaction is modeled on uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is Big Magic by Liz Gilbert, um, where people actually brought in some of their work or some of their reflections and were able to get that feedback. I really want pre-professionals to also get uh, a glimpse at what mentorships look like, because all too often we do confuse internships, mentorships, apprenticeships. Sometimes mentors only come to us an hour at a time. We meet somebody, they have some, something that they can offer us, they have just enough time to sit down for coffee, and that's all you get. So making sure that you can make the best of even that one hour you may get with a mentor, that's what we're here for, um, to foster those kinds of conversations, those kinds of relationships. And ultimately, I really just want to give teens a safe space to have those conversations. Um, again, because you can't start out your young adult life responding to other d adults as if they're just an extension of your parents. It's just not true. But also so that you don't inadvertently reject, um, because, you know, we're often rebellious uh, against those who are actually just trying to be helpful. So that's it for the first episode. Again, this is dedicated to the class of 2020. I really wish I could be there with you. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Just Me. Uh, I often prefer... <laughs> I like conversations. I like it when there's interaction and we can bounce ideas off of each other. Um, honestly, this was partly inspired by my move to Los Angeles after my time teaching uh, because I have met so many incredible people, really all of my life, but especially in the last um, several months, um, you'll randomly meet people and go to coffee and have really great conversations. And even if you never see them again, um, even if they only ever do one thing for you, it's just, it's magical how uh, pivotal those little moments of mentorship can be. Um, so I hope that this journey helps foster your own mentorship and growth as pre-professionals. And I look forward to talking with you soon. Um, be sure, uh, share this with everybody. If you enjoy the information, be sure to comment below. Uh, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Owl Echo Entertainment for hosting this podcast. I hope you have a 
very productive week. Yeah.